So we're going to go ahead and continue just as we've been through the book of 1 Corinthians. And as I was preparing this message, I was thinking about when I was in high school. So when I was in high school, I played football. Matter of fact, it is the only thing that I missed from high school was playing football. I could do away with all the other people. I could still get Facebook friends with people from high school, and I'm like, you weren't even friends in high school. Why do you want to be friends now? <laughs> you know, like, why are you interested now? But the truth is, is I loved playing football. And I remember we weren't very good. I went to Tombstone High School. We played Iron Man because my graduating class was 60. So that means we played, you know, every, every side of the field, special teams. We played offense, defense. All of us did. And, and uh, the only time you got taken out, you know, was when you couldn't breathe, which happened for me more often than some of the fitter guys. But uh, I've had a blast playing football. But one thing I noticed about playing football is that the team is important in football. There's not one person that can do it on their own. And the truth is, is that if each team member were to operate however they wanted to and did whatever they, they thought was right in their own eyes and did the things that they wanted to do and ignored the coach and ignored their team members, then it would just be a mess, right? That's why there's playbooks. That's why there's a coach to direct the team because every person on the team has to work together. And you begin to realize very quickly that no team member is more valuable than the others, even though some team members like to think so. You ever had a team member that they thought that they were more valuable than everybody else, they could do whatever that they wanted? We had a guy that I played with, and we'll just call him Mr. Showboat for now. And, uh, you know, he was a running back, and he thought he could do whatever he wanted. And he often diverted from the plays the coach called and kind of just did his own thing. And if you're familiar with football, when you design a play, you design all the pieces to work together, right? The, the different linemen are going to block the certain people that they need to to make a path for the running back to get through. And, and if you're supposed to go down the middle and the running back does whatever they want and just goes around the side, usually they're going to get met with no protection, no help, and it's just going to be a mess. And every now and then, you know, something, this is probably why he kept doing it, because every now and then he would break through and make a difference. But the problem was, is when he did so, he did so with complete disregard to the team. He did so with complete disregard to the unity of the team, disregard to what the coach's wishes were. And he just did whatever he wanted to do. And the few times that he did something good, it didn't make up for all the times that he just left his team behind him and it wasn't working together with them. He had complete disregard for the unity of the team. And that's kind of what Paul's been dealing with this whole time, if you think about what he's dealing with the church. He's, the, the, there's this, there's the, the individual issues that he's dealing with, but they're all part of what the same root cause, and that's a disregard for the unity of the body. People were more concerned with their own well-being, their own rights, their own wants than with, the, with the, the concern for the entire body. That's basically what Paul's dealing with through this whole time. And as we break into this next section, we need to keep that in mind as we're looking at what Paul has to say because it's really important to understand the context of what Paul is trying to say. Because this first part of chapter 11, on the surface, it deals with God or deals with Paul basically correcting the women of the church, telling them what hair coverings, what that they had to or did not have to wear head coverings. That's what he's dealing with, is how women are behaving in the church. 
And if we take it at surface value, if we're not really careful with this, we can read this section as basically an affront on women. We can read this section as, as, as making it look like that Paul thought women were less valuable, or that Paul thought that they didn't have as much to offer or contribute. But the reality is, is that that is not what Paul was dealing with. As a matter of fact, this whole section doesn't really deal with the role of women in the church nor in their marriage relationship. What the whole point of this whole section is that we need to have the proper conduct and attitude when we come together as a church. We need to operate in unity. We need to have respect for one another and respect for God's plan and purpose for the church and for our lives. Amen? And that's actually what the big problem is with the Corinthians church is they just have a complete disregard for the unity of the body. And every time they get together, it's just disorder and chaos. Everybody's doing what they want to do. And today, like we said, Paul's going to address what's going on with some of the women in the church and, and uh, specifically, and, and, and we'll get into it and explain why, because it seems really weird. What's the big deal if they have a head covering on or not. You know, what's the, and obviously nobody in this church is wearing a head covering right now, so that, that we have to take into context what's going on. But that's what we're going to deal with today is whether women should or should not wear head coverings in church. And, uh, but it doesn't stop there because the next section that we're going to look at next week is he's going to deal with communion, right? We just, we just partook in communion right now. It's that time to remember what Jesus had done for you, done for you and to focus on his success but what they were doing is they were getting together every time they had communion and just getting wasted and having a big old party, getting drunk at the church. And that was the problem. It was causing disorder in the church. And then right after that, we're going to deal with in a couple weeks, um, the gifts of the Spirit. And Paul has some words for them about the gifts of the Spirit and how they were using them. Now, church, we believe in the gifts of the Spirit here. We believe that they should be operated in. It's a, a, a right or a guarantee of yours as a Christian that, that God will give you those, those gifts to operate in them. We believe in them, but they have to be done and used in order. You can't, just like anything, you can't just do whatever you want. You know, we can have great privileges, but along with them really come great responsibilities. But the thing is with Paul, what I love about Paul is, is that he's the founder, he's the creator of this church. He's the one that planted it and started it. He was their leader, their pastor, and he could have just came in and put his foot down. Said, this is how it is, knock it off. You know, like when you tell your kids, they're like, why? And you're like, because I said so. Anybody ever told that to their kids? I used to hate it when my mom did that to me because I said so, and I couldn't understand it. Now I'm an adult, now I know why. It's because we keep asking why. Kids just keep asking why. They don't stop. It's why, 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 and you get tired of answering why. But Paul, he didn't just say, because I said so. He begins to give them the scriptural background and really even the natural background of why these things are so. Amen? He instructed them with the word of God. So as we get into it, let's go ahead and bow our heads and pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for your love. We thank you for your goodness. And Father, we thank you for your word. Father, this morning I pray that we would uh, come into your word with hearts wide open, with eyes wide open, that we would not read into your word what is not there, but instead that you would give us revelation of what you're trying to speak and teach to us. And Lord, I thank you that this morning we would have a revelation of who you are and a revelation of who we are and also how we interact in relationship in the body of Christ. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. 
And praise God. Well, the first scripture that we're going to look at is 1 Corinthians 11.1. 1. And this is the one that actually doesn't make any sense. It's not part of the whole theme of the message today. And actually, this one probably should have been tacked on to the end of last week. And this one is, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. So like I said, to be fair, this should have actually been the last verse of, of chapter 10. But instead, someone came in, and, and how many of you guys know that the chapters and verses weren't a part of the original Bible? They weren't a part of the original New Testament. They weren't there. Um, those were added later so that we could find stuff easier. Basically, it's just an index for us to find scriptures. It was added many years later. It wasn't originally there. And matter of fact, just as a fun fact, in the, the uh, Greek the New Testament was written in, they didn't have punctuation either. So when you wonder with some stuff, when people are, you'll notice the different translations interpret stuff a little bit different. Some of it is translation of the word. Some of it is because they're putting punctuation where they probably shouldn't. And the way that this, I can demonstrate this to you pretty effectively is, is if I said to you, tell me some things that you like. And you say, I like to eat, comma, cats, comma, and dogs, the commas are important because otherwise it sounds like this. I like to eat cats and dogs. Punctuation is important. So sometimes there's parts in the Bible, and I won't get into any of them today, but there are some where if you put the punctuation in a different place, we get a completely different meaning. Um, and, uh, but that's just a, a, the, something to think about when you're reading the Bible when something seems weird and out of place, like why is this at the beginning of chapter 1? And uh, really, if I was paying attention, I would have done it at the end of last week, but I didn't, so we're going to read it today. We're not going to skip any verses. And uh, basically what Paul is saying, though, is he says, look, in these situations, because we're going to read, let's read the end of of chapter uh, 10. It says in verse 31 and 33, so whatever you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage but that of many that they may be saved. But of that, that of the many that they may be saved. And then he says, so be imitators of me as I am of Christ. In these things, you know what? Just be an imitator of me. I put my needs behind the needs of others. And you know what? That's the exact same thing that Jesus did. So really, you can extrapolate this a little bit further, and instead of imitating Paul, just imitate Christ. And that's the thing. When we look at Jesus we find that actually Jesus is perfect theology because Jesus only did the things that the Father did. So, you know, in times past in the Old Testament, they didn't really know who God was. They were learning and having greater revelation along the way. But when Jesus came, we got a real revelation of who God was. And we find out that God's not vindictive and waiting to beat you with a stick, and he's not waiting over you saying, I'll heal you, but only when you get things straightened out. We find that that God actually loves us, and he's willing to give up everything for us. It's his will that we are healed is his will that we are forgiven it's we see who god really is and then that's who we're supposed to be just like jesus so we look at jesus and we should live our such a our lives in such a way that it imitates him that it looks like jesus and it's not really that difficult because we see that jesus loved people right we can do that right we can love people See, nobody's like, this would have been, amen, pastor. You could have been yelling out and screaming. That was what that was for. We're supposed to love people. Other people are like, you don't know some of the people I know. You try loving them. But we're supposed to love people. You know what? Jesus didn't reject people for their failures. 
Even when people were living in sin and fear, he was right there because he loved them anyway. Now, he wasn't going to leave them that way, and he wasn't okay with their sin, but he was going to meet them where they were so that he could help get them out of the position they were in. He didn't reject people that were considered outcasts. You know, Jesus, you got to think of some of the things. He went right up and touched the lepers. He was a Jewish man. That made him unclean. This was unheard of, but he didn't reject the outcasts. Jesus prayed. Matter of fact, that's probably the first thing you can do to be like Jesus, just start praying. That'll make a huge difference in your life. He relied on God and the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus knew the Scriptures, right? He read His Word. You'll see that Jesus quoted from the Old Testament quite regularly. And I want you to know that Jesus didn't receive that from some sort of spiritual osmosis. When He was a kid, He read the Bible and He learned it. He read the scrolls that were in his, 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 the, the temple where He lived and the, the synagogue where He met. He read that stuff, which is what we should be doing as well. But most importantly, Jesus considered everyone else is more important than him. And he proved it by willingly going to the cross and giving up his life for you and I. Amen? In verse 2, we're going to begin to start on the theme of this section. And the first thing he says is, Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I have delivered them to you. So apparently, the Corinthian church had either written Paul a letter, or they sent some delegates to go speak to him because they were giving him a report. And they're saying, these, you know, we, we heard your teaching and we're doing these things. And you remember in chapter one, that whole kind of kicked off this whole letter in the first place was closed people wrote him a letter and said, you people are messing around. You need to deal with them. They're getting out of line. They're getting crazy. But we're also going to find out in chapter 16 that Stephanus Fortunatus, how, how cool a name is that? Fortunatus. I think I'm going to change your name, Blake, to Fortunatus. <laughs> and it says, uh, uh, Achaicus, they visit Paul later in chapter 16. We're going to see that the Corinthian church actually sent people to Paul. So he's in communication with them before he writes this letter. And basically they say, you know what? We heard, we listened, and now that we're doing these things. And he says, you know what? I commend you because you remember me in everything and that you are doing the things that I taught you. So Paul commends him and says, great job. And I look at this and I'm, I begin to realize as we read the rest of this letter is, is that it's entirely possible to get some things right and some things wrong. Because obviously they're doing this part right, but this whole letter is essentially a rebuke. It's correction. So they're obviously doing some things that aren't right as well. So did you know it's possible to be getting some things right and some things wrong? And the thing is, is that the wrong things that you're doing in your life don't somehow invalidate the good things that you're doing in your life as well. The things that you're accomplishing for God, if you, may, if you have a failure, if you make a mistake, that doesn't invalidate everything that you've already done for God or what you are doing for God, the things that you're doing right. And just because something happens in your life and either the Holy Spirit or the pastor comes up to you and says, hey, look, this is something that needs to change. We need to make sure that we're not throwing in the towel and giving up, but instead keep doing the things that we're doing right and then just course correct, make adjustments to the things that we're, we're doing incorrectly. We need to make sure that we are teachable and coachable. If you want to be effective for the kingdom of God, the first thing that you have to remember is that you are coachable or teachable. 
Patrick Murphy is an Alabama softball coach. He said this about, about kids that he coached. He said, uncoachable kids become unemployable adults. Let your kids get used to someone being tough on them. It's life. Get over it. The truth is, is if we want to be effective, we have to remain teachable. And it's not just you guys. That goes the same for me. I have to remain teachable and coachable because I don't have everything right either. Even Paul said, I haven't achieved it yet. But he pressed forward. But I love that Paul is, is a, such a great model for leaders, particularly in the church. Because the, once the one thing he does is he says, look guys, you're doing great in this area. I'm so happy. I'm so blessed. You guys are doing awesome. Keep it up. But we got a few things to talk about. And there he comes into verse 3. He says, but I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. I titled this message in the beginning, if you saw, Relationships in the Body. Because that's basically what we're going to be dealing with today, is how the relationships of the different people in the body work together to create unity, to accomplish the purpose for what God has sent us here for. And that's what Paul's about to do. He's going to address the relationships, particularly of men and women in the church and what's going on. And he begins, um, as he begins instructing the women regarding head coverings in church, he, he explains to them the structure and the method that God has put the church together, the, the, the leadership structure and the roles that God has put in place. And just like on a football team, like I was talking about earlier in the message, that there are, there are positions, there are roles, and none of them are more important than the other. But if there wasn't that structure, if there wasn't that order, there would just be chaos. It's like, have you ever seen little kids play soccer? Like little kids, you know, like three and four-year-olds play soccer? Oh, man, you just want to shake them because, you know, you got, the, you got the one kid that's out there picking his nose and the other one's over here and they're chasing butterflies all around. And then you just got the one that's like, ball rolls right by them and they're like, if you don't have structure, if you don't have roles, if you don't have plans in place, it's just chaos. And that's what Paul is going to begin to explain to these people. He says, first, God is the head of Christ. One, I want you to know that this doesn't indicate in any way that Christ is lesser than God. Because Jesus is God. He's 100% God, 100% man. He is equal in glory and power to God. And John 10.30 actually says that he and the Father are one. And there's actually many other scriptures. As a matter of fact, I did an entire message showing in the scriptures how Jesus Christ is equal to God. He is God. But God is also a God of order. There is a structure. In John 14, 28, it says, Jesus says, I go to the Father because the Father is greater than I. And I, well, that doesn't make any sense. One, he says, he and I are one. Then he says, he is greater than I. But it's because they're still equal. One is not more valuable than the other, but there is still a structure and an order in place. And God is the head of Jesus Christ. And then he goes on to say Christ, 
The head, head of Christ is God, and then he goes on to say that the head of man is Christ. And what that means is that men, men, our responsibility is to be subject to Christ, to be obedient to what he says. We're to follow him, to be obedient to his word, to be in subjection to Jesus Christ. And then he goes on to say, and I know you women are groaning, the head of wife is her husband. And see, here's the problem. A bunch of guys are like, that's right. Do what I said, woman. But that's not what God is getting at. That's not what's going on here. Matter of fact, there is never any indication in the Scriptures that, that man is more valuable than woman, nor that woman is more valuable than man. Matter of fact, we're going to look at a little bit later that we actually are, are interdependent on one another and we work together as a complement to one another to accomplish what Christ has for us in our lives. And it doesn't mean that women can't, are inferior to men. It doesn't mean that women can't hold positions of leadership in the church. It doesn't mean that people can't, women can't prophesy or pray or teach or any of those things. And it does, definitely doesn't mean that they're to be slaves of men. But what Paul's saying is there is a divine order and structure in the church. God has put together a plan for us to work together to accomplish the purpose for which he has sent us. And this divine order, this divine structure is the foundation of the rest of the teaching as he deals with the, the women in the church, uh, in the Corinthian church. In verse 4, it says, Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, but every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. So for every man to pray, what he's talking about, for every man to pray with his head covered was to show disrespect to Jesus and to oneself. And this really isn't difficult for us to understand if we just think about some of the culture and the way that we do stuff even in our, our, our world today, right? If somebody is getting ready to listen to the, to have the national anthem is about to be played, played, what do men do? They take their hat off and they stand up. And really, in the church, you'll often see when men wear, wear hats in the, in the church, if someone's about to pray, they'll take their hat off. It's just, it's something that we do culturally to show respect. And that's what's going on here. He says that, that in order to, to honor God, you, you, you keep your head uncovered when you're praying. But then he goes on to say, and actually, before we get to this point, I want to I notice that, that Paul doesn't say women shouldn't pray or prophesy. Matter of fact, he says, but every wife who prays or prophesies, they should do it in a certain way. So in order to understand this, we have to understand kind of the Corinthian culture, what's going on back there. And the first thing that we need to know that Eastern society, particularly at that time, and really even today in many ways, that they were, they were very jealous over their women. And except for temple prostitutes, the women wore long hair, and in public, they wore coverings over their heads. That was the way the culture was. That's how it did. As a matter of fact, we see that in the Middle East right now. The women are required to wear uh, head coverings and, and all of those things. The problem is, is that the men kind of got some things backward, and they think that they're superior to women when actually that they're not. So they mistreat women, and that's not what we're talking about today. That's not what Paul's talking about. He's not saying it's okay to mistreat women or to, to make them, force them to be subservient. But except for the temple prostitutes who shaved their head, all women in public, they covered their hair. And for the Christian women to appear in public without a covering, let alone pray and share the word without a covering on their head, that was both daring and blasphemous for the time, the times that they were living in. 
And basically what was happening is the, we, we talked about in the beginning that, that the, the women are, or that the, the church in many ways are exercising their different freedoms, but they're doing it in, in poor ways. They're making bad choices. They're causing people to stumble. They're doing things they shouldn't because they're ac- exercising their freedom without thinking responsibly about it. And so that's what's happening here. The Corinthian ch- women are exercising their freedom to go without their head covered. They're exercising their freedom to prophesy without their head covered. But the problem was it was causing disruption and disorder for them to exercise their freedom without regard to anything else that was going on they were causing chaos and disorder in the church and another way we can think about this is think about it this way if if we were to tomorrow to put together a mission trip to go over to iraq and we were going to minister to the ladies over there and the men over there if we wanted to be effective i would ask every woman that was coming with us they would have to wear the clothing that they were wearing over there you would wear your head covered you would wear the be completely covered head to toe not even showing a little bit of ankle what you're wearing today would not be acceptable <laughs> over there and it's not because i believe this is how women have to dress it's not because i believe that this is the way women should be treated but it's because in that culture if we didn't do that we would not be able to be effective administering the gospel it would just cause disruption it would cause chaos it would make people angry and nothing would be accomplished and that's what paul's dealing with is he's not saying that they don't have the freedom to go without those things he's saying that you need to be wise about what you're doing because you're causing a problem you're causing disruption in the church and he goes it a little bit further he's like listen ladies if you want to act like this why don't you just go all the way and shave your head don't, I mean, you know what, really exercise, go all the way and look like the temple prostitutes because that was the culture of the day. The women were, would shave their head if they were a prostitute, one of the temple prostitutes. And Paul saying, think about what you're doing. Who are you trying to associate yourself with? And really, that's advice we can all take. You know, there's a lot of Christians that want to go out and get tattoos and piercings and, and is it a sin? Probably not. But who are you trying to fit in with? Who are you trying to associate with? Who are you trying to look like? And if you have a tattoo or piercing, I'm not saying I got tattoos too. Got them before I got saved. Looks like I got them in prison. They're kind of awful. I would recommend (laughs) having better ones. But uh, (laughs) I didn't get it in prison, even though it looks like it. (laughs) Hallelujah. But yeah, who are we trying to fit in with? And that's what Paul's asking. You know what? Since it's disgraceful for women to do that in this society, I mean, just go all the way. And he begins to challenge them. Now, what's interesting about this is some people get all wrapped up in, in, oh, that means women should wear head coverings today and do all this stuff. What's interesting is, is that when Paul addresses the church in Ephesus, he doesn't mention this at all. He does address the women right? He's talking to Timothy. In 1 Timothy 2, 9 through 10, he says, likewise, also the women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, nor with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness. So if the head covering was the issue, why don't he tell the other churches to do that? That wasn't the issue. The issue is, is, is is operating in such a way that you're not causing disorder and chaos and distraction and causing other people to stumble, right? Exercise your freedoms with responsibility. And the important thing that Paul was dealing with is that both men and women 
should honor God by respecting the symbols of their leadership to work in the structure that God intended. And he says, oh, I forgot to read verse 6. Sorry about that. It says, For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. That's what I was talking about if you're all confused. Sorry about that. And verse 7, it says, For a man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God, but women is the glory of man. Look, now the women are groaning again. But women is the glory of man, for man was not made from a woman, but woman from man. Verse 9 says, Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of their angels, of the angels. So men are to have their head uncovered because they are made in the image and glory of God. Don't yell at me. That's what the scripture says. Now, if you want to know where Paul's getting this from, though, if we take a look back in Genesis 1, 26 through 27, it says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heaven, over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on earth. So God created man in his own image, and the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. So God created actually man and woman in his own image, But there was a difference when God created man and woman, right? Not to mention there was a different order as well. Man was created first. The the idea, the order in the church stems from the order that we are physically created by God. God created man. And then he created woman from the rib bone of a man. So the structure and order in the church has nothing to do with which uh, which one is better than the other. Really, I think most of it stems from the fact of God created the man first, and then he created the woman. And it doesn't mean that women are better than men, or men are better than women, and it doesn't mean that women aren't made in the image of God, because they are. That's what it said there, right? Male and female, he created them in their image. But the point that Paul is trying to make is that women was created to be complementary to man. God made man first. We read in Genesis 2, verse 18 through 24, uh, the two main points there is that God did not think it was good for man to be alone, so he created a helper. And the plan was for man to leave his father and mother and become one with the woman. He would leave his father and mother and become one with his wife. We were created to to work together, to be complementary to one another. This is the whole reason why Paul says that, that woman was made for, from man, or for man, and from that he derives that the woman's glory is of, or the woman is of the glory of man. That's where he gets this from. It has to do with creation. It's nothing terribly complicated, and I want to keep laboring the point that Paul is never saying that one is better than the other. But what is happening is, is when these women were operating in such a manner with no covering, Outside of the structure and relationship that God had provisioned and created, she was basically abandoning her glory. She was not operating in the position God had created her to operate in and basically doing whatever she wanted. And men and women are both capable of doing this, not operating in what God intended them to operate and just doing whatever they want. And the reality is, is we all abandon our glory. We abandon God's purpose for our lives in those things. 
And then he goes on to say, that is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. This is kind of a strange one, but we see in many places in Scripture, uh, 1 Corinthians 4, 9 says, uh, for I think that God has exhibited us as apostles and last of all, like men sentenced to death because we've become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. It's not the only place where we find that angels are, for some reason, interested in what we are doing and they're watching over what we are doing. 1 Timothy 5.21 says, In the presence of God and Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. 1 Peter 1.12 said, It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit and sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. There is a reality that angels are watching over us, and the truth is, is that we have something that they don't. We have free will, and, and God created a plan of salvation for us. The angels are interested in this. They're watching it, seeing how it's playing out. And that's all that Paul is intending here is that, hey, why don't we live salvation out in such a way that we are, we are honoring and respecting God because there are people watching. There are angels watching. Let's go ahead and, and, and display salvation in the manner that God intended it to be displayed. Amen? In 1 Corinthians 11 through 12, it says, Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not in, independent of a man, nor man of woman. For as a woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. Now, Paul is, has established the headship or the, the order or the structure in godly relationships in the church. But just as there is headship, we have to understand that there is also partnership in the body of, of Christ as well. And the truth is, is that men and women are not independent of one another. Like I said, we were created to be complementary to one another. We were created in such a way that, that we need one another. I just had uh, some folks over last night, and we were talking about how if our wives weren't there with us, that uh, we would just be completely lost. And the guys agreed with it, and the women were like, amen, you guys would be out of your mind. And, not me. and it's true. We, I need my wife. My wife is awesome. I believe she's the best wife in this room. And if you don't believe that, you're wrong. And she's not even in the room. I don't know where she went. But, no, she didn't. Listen, we're just talking about how I need her. We can't be telling me stuff like that. So, <laughs> but the truth is, is that we need one another. We complement one another. And the, the, our purpose is is affected when we work together. When you have been called to marry a woman or a woman's been called to marry a man, you guys become one flesh. And your purpose is to be together. And the truth is, is that uh, we, we, a woman or a man, particularly if you're married, should not seek to be independent. And like I said, we are interdependent. And there's a difference between interdependency and codependency. Right? If you're codependent, that means you can't exist without somebody else. If you're interdependent, that means that you still have individuality, which men and women should, because we're different. But we also come together and work together to accomplish the purpose that God has for us. Amen? And neither of us should consider ourselves superior. Men should not consider themselves superior, neither should women. Because the truth is, is that God created us both for each other, and we all come from Him. Amen? In verse 13, he says, judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to 
pray to God with their head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? So now Paul began, he was just using the scriptures, he was using the structure that God had created to illustrate his point about how we should be behaving in the church and how we should be working with one another and how we should not be stepping outside of God's plan for our lives and not exercising our our freedoms without responsibility. And then he says, this is the scripture showing it, but maybe you haven't noticed this yet, but men and women are different. Anybody ever notice men and women are different? They're different. Women, their heads don't work the same way. They, they use better. I don't know what they are. All I know is that, that I, I can't think like a woman. I can't. Sometimes my wife does stuff and I'm, I, I don't understand. She gets mad at me for stuff because apparently I'm supposed to be able to read her mind. But I can't. After I've been trying, it's, it's 14 years we're married, to be 15 in January, I still can't read her mind. I think, I think so. But men and women are different, right? We, we are different. We act different. We have different qualities. They've written books about it. Apparently we're from different planets. So Paul used spiritual truth and scripture to demonstrate the spiritual truth. And now he says, you know what? Even in the natural world, it bears this out. Men and women are different. Even though today, in today's society, people are really, really trying hard to blur that line and to, to somehow um, wipe away the physical differences between a man and a woman. The reality is, is that we are different. And that's what he says. Doesn't nature teach you that if a man wears long hair, it's a disgrace? And this is for their culture. Obviously, in our culture, many guys have long hair and, and many don't, and it's not a huge deal. And many women have short hair and many women don't, and it's not a big deal. But in this culture, that was something that was a big deal. And the truth is, even in cultures back then, there were certain, I think if I was reading correctly, it was the Spartans. They, the men wore their hair long, and it was never considered effeminate. That was just how they wore their hair. They tied it up for battle. And there, there was a, a, a reality that this is a cultural thing. But he says, even in your culture you realize that the guys do things one way and the girls do it another. And if they shave their head or keep it short, then it's a disgrace because they look like the, the temple prostitutes. And if guys grow their hair long, it's a disgrace. There's a difference between man and woman. And that's all he's saying here. Nature even shows this difference. So quit trying to blur the lines. In verse 15, she says, But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory, for her hair is given to her for a covering. That was the end of verse 15 there. And then we're going to end here in verse 16. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. So Paul's final argument for maintaining the normal practice of head coverings in their culture is that no other church is doing the kinds of crazy stuff that you guys are doing. He says, if you want to be contentious, if you want to be cantankerous, if you want to argue with me, listen, go talk to the other churches. I don't have this kind of practice. The other churches aren't practicing these same things. You know, well, why are you trying to, to rock the boat? And Paul wasn't trying to make the Corinthian church act or behave in a way that the other churches weren't acting. He wasn't treating them differently. He says, look, act in a proper way that causes order and unity and not disorder because the root cause of what paul was dealing with ultimately was 
the same one that he was dealing with when they were talking about offering food sacrifice to idols. It's going to be the same one that we deal with in the next couple chapters with the gifts of the Spirit and with the the, a communion. And it's this idea that the Corinthians were far more concerned with exercising their individual rights than they were with being concerned with the needs of others or glorifying God. And that was the problem. That was the root cause. And for, for the Corinthians, women getting rid of their coverings did not come across as freedom or exercises their freedom, but it actually came across as a lack of respect for God and a display of disorder. Even though they weren't technically wrong, sometimes just because you have the right to do something doesn't mean you should do it. Amen? So how does this impact us today? That's the real issue, right? Is how do we deal? With, we learn this stuff in the Scripture. We, all, we know that uh, all Scripture is there for teaching and correction and for rebuke and for, for training. That's what Paul told Timothy. So that's the question we have to ask. How does this impact us today? First, starting next week, you guys don't have to start wearing hats. Women don't have to start wearing head coverings. We're going to go ahead and keep doing things the way that we're doing them. And to be honest with you, I'm not really part of the camp that thinks somebody has to take their hat off before they pray either. Because the reality is, is I believe that God's looking at your heart, not your head. But that being said, if I'm around somebody who I think that's going to bother, you better believe I'm going to take my hat off because it's not really that big of a deal for me to take my hat off, but it could offend somebody and cause somebody to be upset. So not that big of a deal. Take your hat off. If you lived in a culture, like if we went over to, to Iraq to minister to them, it's not that big of a deal, ladies. Put on a head covering. It doesn't change anything about you, but it could affect somebody else. Amen? The truth is, is that we need to operate in such a way that it's going to respect and uphold the structure and order that God has put in place in our churches, in our marriages, in our time of worship. And the truth is, is that means that we're just going to have to be responsible to Jesus. We're going to have to be obedient to him, make sure that he is given the preeminence and everything that we do is for his glory or to not get in the way of somebody else coming to know him. That means that wives need to be subject to their husbands. Now, this doesn't mean that they're to be stamped on or stepped on or mistreated or abused. And truthfully, guys, how about being the type of husband that your wife can trust and rely on? How about being the type of husband that she wouldn't have a problem coming alongside you and walking beside you? and trusting you and believing what you have to say. The truth is, is that as guys, we have a great responsibility to our wives and to Jesus. And the truth is, is that guys, you're going to answer for a lot more than your wife is going to answer for. All that time you thought that, oh yeah, I'm the big man and I'm the one in charge. But it also means you have a greater responsibility to answer for when you stand before Christ. Because it's your responsibility to lead your family. It's your responsibility to lead your children and to lead your wife and to pray over them and to make sure that they're instructed in the way that they should go. And the scripture says you're to be willing to give up your life for them like Christ did for the church. Be that kind of man and I guarantee you your, your wife will have no problem walking alongside you and supporting you. I promise you that. Don't get 
so caught up in some sort of false superiority complex that you disregard the responsibility that that entails. And church, let's just live in such a way that we're obedient to his word. Let's uphold his plan and structure. Let's do all to his glory. Because the truth is, is we all have a part to play. We all have a role to play. And if we will do that, then we will see great things accomplished for the kingdom of heaven. Amen? Amen. Let's go ahead and bow our head as we come to the end here.